everybody, and welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. I am your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I am joined, as always, by Adam, King of Owago Beach Cook. Kneel at my feet, my royal subjects. Great to be here, Blaine. Great to have you, buddy. Today we are streaming live from Owago. Quick warning, we will be spoiling this month's comic, so proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? This month, we read This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki, which follows teenage friends Rose and Wendy as they meet up for another summer in a small beach town. It explores the pair's friendship and touches on on themes of family, fitting in, and growing up as it finds its place among many of the classics' coming-of-age stories. Blaine, what did you think about this one? This is a classic coming-of-age story, and to me, I think I mentioned it a little bit last time on our First Impressions episode, is the vibe the feeling, the sort of the nostalgia factor of this book is something that really captured my attention. And it's, I think, encapsulated by two things. One, the art, which I was just obsessed with. I I think the art in this book is next level. And then I think the writing is kind of this, it, it, it's the perfect pairing because it's this sort of dream-like, again, nostalgia lens where um, the main characters are revisiting this place. This is this is one summer, but they've been here many times, and this experience is sort of different. They they talk about their past experiences here. It's kind of this cyc- cyclical referencing itself, and there's these, when we get into best lines, a lot of my best lines are kind of these, the thoughts of Rose and how she's kind of... Um, viewing the world. And those just kind of creates this dreamlike sort of experience here. And obviously, coming of age stories are not always great. They always have some trauma, some sort of, you know, um, strife, fam- familial strife. And that was certainly encapsulated here. But to me, it was just kind of this awesome nostalgia trip um, with incredible art. What about you, bud? Yeah, I'm pretty much on the exact same page. I loved the art. I kind of, you know, I had to work a little bit harder to pick my favorite lines, best lines, but the art was just, I had to, I was had too many. And um, yeah. yeah, it was just a really great pairing of the art and the type of writing going along with it. And like you said, it's very much told from the perspective of Rose, you're in her thoughts a lot of the time. And I really loved that. And it just felt like, a, you know, a very close story in that way. And um, I love a good coming of age story. I, I just, I, I can't get enough of them for whatever reason it is. It's one of my favorite subjects or themes, or I guess it's basically a genre at yeah. this point. And um, I also, I just love them because each one has a new thing and kind of tells a different story because everyone grows up differently. And there's, I feel like there's so much of the creator in a coming of age story because you're trying to tell something about yourself, I feel like with it. And I loved this. I love getting it from a feminine, a female perspective, something different. Um, and there were just lots of, yeah, nostalgic connections, especially that I felt, you know, kind of going to summer camp for those who don't know, Blaine and I, we know each other. I mean, we, we grew up in the same hometown and went to the same high school and everything, but 
we really know each other from this summer camp called the Pines right. um, out in East Texas. And there's just something about when you go back to the same place every summer that the, the, the specificity of that experience was so relatable to me, these things that you know exactly where they are, you know when to go to a certain place. Yes. And there's little differences where it's like, oh, this person has, you know, this, this, they got glasses this year. This person got braces yes. this year or whatever. And um, you only get to know these people through this one week experience. But so much is packed into a week that it feels yes. like a lifetime. Yes. And yeah, it really just hit me in all the right spots. It's summertime right now. And it was the perfect time to read this. I was also really glad that I had the physical edition of this because this was one that I wanted to hold and just like carry around with me. And sometimes I think it really, you know, benefits the experience to have the physical version versus the digital version. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to kick back with this book by the pool because I don't have a pool or there's not a good pool to visit. <laughs> yeah. But this is the perfect kind of, again, or beach, right? If I could make it down to the beach with this book, you know, lay out a towel, get a little umbrella going, um, you know, get a little drink on the side would be absolutely perfect. I wanted to ask you about that because you said it and I was thinking the exact same thing. In my life now as an adult, I find myself thinking about vacations very much being like, I want to go somewhere new. Let me check out um, I, somewhere where I haven't been before. But us going to summer camp every summer, same place, the same way that the the girls in this go to the same summer house every year. Um, I just sort of find that I, I was mentioning like the kind of cyclical nature of like, you revisit it again, but it's a different lens this time. Yeah, Maybe something has changed in the environment but also a lot has changed in you. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's amazing how it's like it, things are kind of always the same, but a little different every time. And a lot the same. You know, like like th that's the thing is, and you know, when we talk about summer camp, me and Adam, we, we love to, you know, talk about our glory days. Um, but every week a new fresh round of campers come out and you go through the same activities. It's over and over and over, and you're scheduled down to like a microcosm of like, now we eat breakfast, now we do this. And you're in such close proximity to each other, the same way that Rose and Wendy here, the first thing she does is get on her bike and go over and hang out with Wendy. And there's ups and downs in their relationship throughout the course of this book. And um, there, there's a little bit of an age difference as well. So they kind of, they're, you know, coming into their sexuality, but they're also, um, you know, talking about their individual experiences because obviously Rose's parents are going through some issues where Wendy, you know, she's adopted and, you know, she has a grandmother and mother that's in the LGBT community. So, you know, she kind of has a different experience there and the way they're approaching crushes and and just their lives is totally different. Yeah. And, like, you know, kind of like the frankness in which they have these discussions about kind of like sexuality or like getting boobs for the first time. There's like right. this innocence, but also this kind of like, you know, this adultness to it, too, that it's so it's just exactly what happens when you, you know, come come of age and you go from being a kid to having these real, real conversations, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Th this book also, there's a little bit of controversy because it was pulled out of libraries. Um, I saw like kind of like banned book because uh, librarians were like, oh, we don't know if kids could handle this. And I kind of wanted to ask you, um, I was thinking, 
there's an there's an argument of like uh no kids of this age of Rose and Wendy's age should be reading this so that they can it can help them sort of process and then there's another argument that's like no it's kind of more for adult audiences and we should classify it in an older book section because it's better whenever you're older and then you can revisit it through the nostalgic lens of kind of like looking backwards and I just kind of wanted to ask you kind of your thoughts on that and if you remember maybe even any uh, coming of age stories in your youth that kind of um helps you know cast your like viewpoint onto the world like i said i love coming of age stories and i think that i connected with a lot of them um growing up and that was a way that i could kind of process my own feelings was watching these different things or reading about them um actually going to talk about it a little bit in adaptation alley so i'll save some of the specifics but there's a save lot it. that i really loved and yeah. um yeah i wish though that I had had more of a conversation when I was watching these things after the fact or reading them, yes. maybe talk to my parents or an older sibling, a cousin or something like that about kind of just what I was feeling about what I just saw. And so that's kind of how I think I would approach a book like this. I think you'd, yes. you would want to kind of know that the the child is of the right emotional intelligence to be able to process this thing. And then you'd be able to have a conversation with them about it afterwards. Cause I think that's really important, especially when they're that young um, to be, in, you know, sometimes like you're going to get exposed to things at some point. So why not help usher them in, in the right way and kind of give them a little perspective on the things they're going to be exposed to rather than just letting them go off and learn them all by themselves. But I don't know. It's tough. I don't have kids. You do have kids. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would do is pretty obvious. It's like you hand somebody this book and then you, after they're done reading it, you give them a podcast, right? And it's Comic Club Podcast all about, you know, the book and talking about it. That's, That's right. the we're obvious We're going to pass do. down our podcasting to the next generation. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, no, as far as like, you know, who it's for and stuff like that, I, I think you summed it up right. And I was, I was thinking about this because, um, with more of these kind of, and I don't know if this is classified as YA, I think it has sometimes, but, uh, I passed to my younger cousin, I believe now, you know, she went through middle school and I think now she's in early high school and I like to to buy these and then I just pass them off because she's found interest and I always want to cultivate new readers, whether it's in comics or novels or whatever. And, um, and this is one I kind of did have to think a little bit about. I mean, it has the, the issue with, uh, Rose's mother has a, um, uh, miscarriage and that's what, ha that's what we find out at the very end. That's why she's kind of so, uh, kind of cold throughout. That's what the issues withdrawn, are stemming from in, in the, yeah, yes. Withdrawn. That's a better, it's a better description. And that's the, where the issues stem from with the parents. And then the other big thing there is also the unplanned pregnancy of the kind of two teens in the town as well. And I mean, those are big things, especially whenever you're a, a young teen seeing, uh, older kids go through that or your parents go through it. I mean, it, it's intense. So I certainly had to think about it. And I think you said it the best where it's, um, having the conversations or um, talking things through because you really do need to understand. Having said that, I think this book contextualizes it in a really interesting way. I've seen some of the other controversy just be like, there's swear words in here and, and you know, this is just inappropriate. And, and that's totally different. I mean, I think the, um, 
Wendy's mom says it best. You know, whenever Rose's mother and Wendy's mother are kind of talking at the very end, and she's like, "You need to tell her. You need to talk it through. Trust me, children understand these things. They they can process them. You can't just hide everything um, from kids." But um, another question I wanted to ask you, Adam, you mentioned the physical edition of this book. I'm holding it in my hands, right? The uh, regular comics are kind of this big, think about like a letter size sheet of paper, the A4 or whatever you call it. Oh, sick. He's got all these notes in it. So do I. Um, What do you think about these kind of smaller size? You know, you, you think about we're praising the art so much and regular graphic novels are actually quite a bit bigger than this. But I find whenever they produce these, a lot of YA, they're kind of this smaller size. And I wanted to know, did that sort of impact? What do you think about holding this in your hand versus a bigger one? They're custom made for tiny hands. Uh, I I loved it. I actually didn't think about that uh, as much as, you know, until you bring it up right now. But now that you mention it, it has more of a traditional book shape and size to it. Um, You know, it feels more like a regular novel, bringing out the novel and graphic novels. And um, I loved it. I think there should be more. There's room for everything. I love a big, nice, glossy spread. But I also... I liked this one and I think maybe that made it feel a little bit more intimate of a, an experience kind of just small, easily transportable. We talked about taking it to a beach. I would have loved to have been able to read this, you know, buy some water. I feel like it kind of helps the experience, um, by making it that small. Yeah. And, and I love this small cause one, and, and I don't know about publishing, but I'm wondering, does it cut down on costs? Because I know, you know, they, they get these things in scholastic book fairs and you can get a cheaper price point on here as well. Sometimes when they're a little bit smaller. Um, but to your point, it's like a book size. You, you throw this in a backpack, you can kind of carry it in your hand. Some of the times those graphic novels are just very floppy and, you know, big and not always the best to carry around. But I don't know, just something I was kind of thinking about as I was like, I wonder what this, you know, because sometimes they do these features of artists and they're like oversized, absolute edition, and it's massive. And it's almost like unreadable at that scale, especially when it's like hardbound. You're reading in bed, it's like crushing your chest when you fall asleep. <laughs> Yeah, dude. I mean, some books are just, they just get carried away. They get carried away. All right, let's move on over to the best lines. This is the section of the show where we showcase the written word and highlight our favorite moments of dialogue, exposition, and more. Adam, start us off. What is your first best line? Okay, so I'm going to do my first best line as actually not a line at all. But I just really loved, we talked about a little bit about like the sound effects, how she uses them, um, sort of different takes on onomatopoeia, I would say, and presenting a vibe or kind of a a moment. And there's this one right at the beginning, like it's on the second page or something when they pull up, everyone gets out of the car and they're back at the beach for the first time. And uh, Rose just breathes in the air and there's a little notation that says sniff right by her nose. And I just loved that moment because there's something about the air at these different places. And me coming from California, going to Texas, when I get to Texas, one of the first things I always feel is that difference in the air. It's just different here. It's hard to describe, but I I just love it. And um, I really related to that moment. So great line there. Just a little sniff. Just a little sniff. There are 
I believe tied to our memory and nostalgia as well, I think it's like sounds and smells have that um, where it takes you back in a way that almost visuals and imagery um, don't always. And I found that even recently myself, Adam, whenever I was going for a walk this past, uh, maybe two nights ago, and it was, you know, taking my new baby out and we're like, she's having trouble falling asleep. I take a little walk around the block. And it's among the first time I really heard the cicadas just lighting up and you hear the sounds of them. And again, it takes me back to like camp. I I just think about walking around at night, that cool Texas night. And yeah, like the the sounds and the smells. And I just love that feeling. I loved it. What, What you got? All right. Mine, all right, all three of mine are these little in-between moments. So there's, uh, it's almost like they feel like chapter breaks to me because you get kind of the action of the scene where people are talking and interacting with each other. And then you get these little asides where you hear Rose, it's like her thoughts or there's narration all of a sudden. And this is, um, this is one, I'll read it out to you. I know a little bit about sex. When I was in second grade, my teacher, Miss Sloan, got pregnant, so we had a class about where babies come from. We saw this movie where a deer was giving birth. When the deer came, when the baby deer came out of the doe, Ron Tomlinson barfed all over his desk. And uh, that was just one where, you know, I, I thought it was slightly humorous, but I also really like the attention to detail. You mentioned this, Adam, where you think um, coming-of-age stories are really you know, indicative of the writer. They show these little slices of moments and these little pieces. And just naming those two characters, talking about the specifics about the deer, which I find hilarious because I don't think I ever watched anything like that um, with animals. But uh-huh. um, uh, but, uh, but I just thought the specifics of it, and that just is time and time again. I mean, you can tell Mariko Tamaki is just pulling on her life experiences and just sharing all these little slices of life that you know she's experienced in this book. Same with the art as well. Yeah, really love that. I love the, you know, the personal connection that I feel in this story. Um, my next one, a little bit of a pivot. This one's definitely uh, one of the funnier lines I thought of the entire thing. But at one point, um, Rose's aunt and uncle come to stay and uh, – She's kind of just describing them all. And she says at one point, Uncle Daniel is always trying to give me beer. So maybe he shouldn't have kids. And I just loved that. As an uncle, I love the uncle uh, role in the family dynamic. And I feel like that's exactly what you're going for. You're just kind of, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of a bad influence at some times. But yes. you're a very fun influence. And you're there to kind of lighten the mood absolutely you're the cool uncle because the the parent figures half the responsibility they cannot sort of always be cool and be like hey let's try it out this time or whatever and and but at the same time they want you know for people to experiment within bounds and that's what a family is for the you know if, if it were just some other person outside of the family it's weird right but whenever it's in the family there's sort of the safety net of also like we're still looking out for you but it's not your dad you're like come on dad yeah. you know it's the uncle so like we all have that one uncle that gave yes. us beer when we were way too young and we were just yes. like oh this is gross but they probably yes. laughed and you know they're you know your mom yells at them and yes it's hilarious and you got one step closer to getting that acquired taste of that sweet, sweet nectar. That's right. One step closer to adulthood 
one step closer to death. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my next one. (laughs) That that got me. My next one, um, (laughs) again, one of these little asides, these little chapter breaks, um, and this is a long one, so kind of bear with me here. This year, I took my Red Cross levels 9 and 10 swimming badges at the YMCA. Mitch, my teacher, specialized in holding his breath. He could swim four pool links underwater without coming up for air. He told me the secret was he would just tell himself he was actually breathing. And he would just say to himself over and over, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. When my mom is mad at my dad because my dad won't do something or forgets to do something, she says, you can say all you want, Evan, but I'm not holding my breath. And uh, I I love this. And I think it's so subtle what Mariko Tamaki is doing kind of like with language. And I think she does it um, time and time again here. And also the juxtaposition with the art where she kind of tells these little aside stories, um, but then they also have the meaning in the story themselves. And, and, and I love that a lot of times, you know, some of the symbolism and stuff, I, I, I find I kind of get lost and sometimes I don't always pick them up, but I sort of feel the vibe of them often. And that's just one where, you know, you think you're reading one thing and then you are actually getting a little slice of life into the family situation. Yeah. It's really skillfully done um, the way that she connects those, because I think it's really true to kind of how an adolescent mind processes things. You take these other experiences and use them to connect and, you know, explain something bigger and harder to process. Yes. So yes. she's taking a big emotional moment of seeing her parents fight and relating yes. it to a very personal and relatable thing of holding your breath underwater. I love it. It's beautiful. Exactly. It's awesome. It's awesome. What do you got next? All right. So my next one is at the very end. And this, I, you know, I thought this was again, kind of that way that the adolescent mind processes things in a sort of like frankness, but also like a beautiful, simplicity to it um, because you kind of haven't been jaded, I guess. But uh, so at the end, a girl rides up on her bike to Rose and she says, could you tell her um, that the girl, Jenny, that's her name. Anyway, Jenny says, thank you. And Rose says, sure, I will. And these next, these next lines are from Rose's thoughts. She says, Jenny is cool now. I wonder if that means she'll have the baby if the dud called her or not. I hope she's cool. I hope it's true. And I just was so moved by those lines and the way that she's processing all these things that happen, because this is right after the girl who's, you know, a pregnant teenager kind of, you know, has a suicide attempt. Essentially, she gets really drunk. She goes out into the ocean. Rose's mom dives in after her to save her and um, kind of finds a little redemption for herself and like comes back to life, essentially. And, uh, And you don't know what happens. They leave it ambiguous on purpose, which is beautiful. I love that. You can kind of write your own ending. And this is how Rose is processing it all. She's just, you know, she's taking those words and giving them a lot of weight. But like, you know, she hopes that she's gets through it now. You know, it's ambiguous to us and it's ambiguous to Rose. And I think there's so many times like that in life where you're like, especially when you look back at your youth, you're like, was that actually how it was? What happened? I I never found out. I I never sort of knew. And it was kind of one of those things. uh, Oh man, I love that line. And again, just kind of talking about 
the the first time the mother goes into the water is you know since she essentially lost a life is to save a life and just that that parallel there is just so powerful and it really hits hard at the end of the book yeah loved that line gave me goosebumps even just reading it then i was like man this line's good yeah it's great all right my last one is very very near the end and it goes like this i remember once when i was eight and we were going to come here in the winter for this thing i can't remember what it was and i was all mad because i didn't want to see a while go with snow so i pretended to have a stomach ache so i wouldn't have to go i wanted to have this perfect picture of a wago in my head which i guess is a picture of a wago in the summer kind of just like this and again it's that that's like this weird piece of growing up and you don't want things sort of ruined for you and and i find this a lot with myself whenever this is going to be kind of like a silly aside adam but it's like okay i remember this nostalgic thing from my youth in this case Batman the animated series. I remember it being absolutely legendary and I'm like, should I go back and watch all those? Is that is that something I am I ready to do that? And I'm like, well, you know, it it'll never in my mind, and maybe it will, but I don't think it can really occupy the same power, strength and vibe as it did to sort of that young mind. And and here we see uh again Rose kind of thinking about this place which is such a big part of her life and it's the summer and whenever you see it almost out of context covered in snow it's like gets a little bit ruined a little bit tainted in a weird way um for you and it's it's there's a little bit of you know naivete there because it's like i don't want things to change but um i don't know i just really like that line that's a great line you know very very poetic and yeah just another another well done bit of writing Absolutely. All right. That's the best lined. We're going to move over to the, they're the best at what they do. This is where we chat about the creators themselves, covering how they got started in comics and highlighting their other notable work. First up, we have Mariko Tamaki. She is a Japanese Canadian and Jewish Canadian uh, writer. Her bibliography is Cover Me, a novel in 2000. And I'm going to kind of read the overview here and you'll kind of get a you know a vibe for her thing she says it's it's about a point a poignant story about an adolescent coping with depression so i i find after researching a little bit more of a work she kind of does tell these coming of age adolescent stories she likes to star uh, asian americans or asian canadians so that there's a little bit more representation so that young asians can also see themselves in the work that they do. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Next, she paired with her cousin, Jillian Tamaki. The two creators here are cousins together. On Skim, a graphic novel in 2009. This one summer, what we read for Comic Club in 2014. And then lastly, her other kind of independent work is Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me in 2019 by Rosemary Valero O'Connell. That one best publication for teens eisner award um she's also kind of broken into mainstream comics so i've seen her name pop up uh in a lot of different places here's here's the kind of ones she's worked on she hulk supergirl and x23 
uh, from both Marvel and DC. She has a graphic novel, YA graphic novel, coming out this year called I Am Not Starfire. It is about Teen Titan Starfire's daughter. And she won an Eisner Award for Harley Quinn Breaking Glass in 2020, uh, where it was she won the best writer for that one. And right now she's currently writing detective comics in DC, and she is the first female writer in detective comics history. Adam. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, that comic has been going on for so long, and it's just been men this whole time. And I think it's not like she's introducing all these female characters, but she's talked about it, listened to in interviews. She's just like, sometimes it's, you know, getting a different perspective on um, the classic hero, Batman, just written by a woman. Who would have thunk? But either way, um, I'm reading that, and it's actually awesome. I'm really digging that book, so pick up Detective Comics if you're out there. Next, we have Jillian Tamaki. After art school, she worked for a video game company, BioWare. That's something that a lot of these artists do, Adam, you'll find, is comics pay just okay, but video games, the industry is massive. I mean, gosh, they overshadow like film, TV, and sports like Tenfold, I, I made that number up. I don't know, but Sounds either good. way, yeah, they, they get these characters. And there's there's many times in comics where there's like an artist, and all of a sudden they're just like, yeah, they don't work anymore. They got picked up by Ubisoft. They got picked up by Bioware, and now they just make more money. They're not as high profile. You don't really hear from them as much because they're just kind of in the machine producing background art and concepts and stuff like that. But you know, got to get paid, which that means comics. We gotta we gotta pay our creators more. That's right. Everyone gets paid more, baby. Uh, she did some ma- a lot of magazine and, and book illustration. Her bibliography uh, is a lot of graphic novels. She has Gilded Lilies in 2006. That's actually a collection of her illustration and comic strips. Uh, the Skim, which I mentioned uh, with her cousin. And then uh, Super Mutant Magic Academy in 2015, where she won Best Graphic Album in the Eisner Awards, and then Boundless in 2017, which she won Best Graphic Album Reprint. So they've each won three Eisner Awards, and they won Best Graphic Album New for this book we hold in our hands this one summer. We talked about the awards on the cover. It's funny that the awards on this are kind of like two book awards, like, um, you know, novel book awards, and not the Eisner Awards, which, you know, why is that not on here? I don't know. It gets no, uh, doesn't, people don't, they're not impressed by that. Okay. People don't care. It's like, you want a, you want a comic book award? I don't care. But then it's like, oh, you want a, a Prinz, a, Mi- a Michael Prinz award for excellence? Yeah, we'll put that on the front. Caldecott honor book. Adam. Oh yeah, that goes right up Caldecott. front. Caldecott. That goes right up front. All right. Speaking of awards, we're going to move over to the art awards. This is the segment where we hand out awards to specific visual moments in the book it can be a single panel it can be the coloring or lettering and sometimes it can be a whole scene adam start us off what is your first art award okay i'm gonna give my first award to um i'm gonna call this one best motion okay and this is a two-page spread this is one of those kind of transitions that you had mentioned in your best yes. lines, kind of in between yes. the chapters. And um, we've got a hummingbird feeder, and there's, you know, I think it's just one hummingbird, but it's going all the way around, all across these pages, and you see these motion lines that are following it, really kind of just nice pencil work. 
and the wings of the hummingbird are just dozens of tiny little lines, just little little needles of lines that really encapsulate the way that hummingbirds fly. I really loved it, and I just felt that that spread come to life. So I'm giving that the best motion award. I'm almost positive that one of my best lines is overlaid on top of that page. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, I, I love that so much. And Jillian Tamaki, she portrays nature and the sort of outdoors. There's like water scenes just beautifully. I mean, she the way she renders is fantastic. My first award is called the Indoor Kid Award. And this is page... 46 and 47 for those following along out there. This features Rose kickbacked in an unmade bed. She is reading, looks like a magazine here. I know she reads lots of manga in the in the comic as well. And there are like two, there's actually three cups next to her bed, half drunk. There's a there's a plate on the ground with a cup of tea on it. Looks like she just ate lunch and just left it there. There's trash under her bed. It's all unmade. And it's just that you know, feeling in the summer when it's just so hot outside, it's 1, 1 p.m. and you're just eating lunch and you're just hot and you're just like, I'm, I'm not feeling like I'm going to go outside. I'm going to sit in here in the air conditioning and just kick back and read. And I just love that. So that double page spread gets my Indoor Kid Award. You need a good break in the day, okay? You can't just be out in that heat all day long. The Texas sun will fry you to death. That's why. Wear your sunscreen. Wear your sunscreen. Drink lots of water. Okay, my next award is a nice, okay, six-page spread. Dang. Okay? We're going across six different pages, and this one starts in a cool overhead shot, really kind of like aerial eye in the sky, of Rose running up to the beach, and half of... um. Half of the two-page spreads, that would be one page, is just waves. She's running up into these waves. And as yep. you flip the page, it just becomes two full pages of waves. It's these really nice brush strokes. And you can just kind of see the, the water movement, the fluidity of these pages. And you flip them again. And those, those water lines are now the sky. They made the clouds in the sky. And below, in small shape in the distance are rose and windy now walking along later in time and i'm giving that the award for best transition because it just was a master class in transitioning between moments oh i love that so much again those that nature the skies and the ocean are just captured so well you can you can feel it oh love it what you got all right, my next award is Best Sound Design. I think Adam mentioned some some of the sound effects uh, in his best lines. But this is the first moment, I, I believe, when we kind of see that the parents aren't exactly on the best terms. And um, the mother is washing dishes, and they're both kind of helping. And the father leans over to give her a kiss where she drops a bowl. And you see on this page, it is page 98, where the bowl crashes in the ground it starts to break the next panel is going to a million pieces all of a sudden it's all in black and you see oh sh oh shit and then it goes crack but this is what i wanted to call out it's it's the pieces laying on the ground and then you just see these words and it's wiggle 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 and it's kind of like the fallout you know you could emphasize the crash 
But this also emphasizes the sort of fallout of that. And it's just those pieces kind of wiggling on the ground, that that silence, that awkward silence of like, oh gosh, who's going to say something about this first? It's just sitting there. You can yes. cut the tension with a knife. I love yes. that. That goes best sound design. All right, Adam, what you got next? Love it. My last award, I'm going to give this one a very special award. This reminded me of a really specific um, comic from Calvin and Hobbes. I'm going to give okay. this the Watterson Award. It's a two-page spread. I'm all about the two-page spreads this time. Yes. And um, what it is is it's Rose sitting at a table, and Wendy is just dancing her little butt off oh, around yeah. her. And she's moving around, and there's multiple images of Wendy as Rose just sits there. There's only one Rose, but there's like 10... Wendy just doing little yes. dance moves, shaking her knees, you know, throwing her hands in the air. And there's this one Calvin and Hobbes where they're just each panel is them just doing a different dance move. And then you find out at the end that they're playing like classical music like three times as fast as they should be. Hilarious joke. I loved this. It brought me right back to that moment. So that gets my Watterson Award. Love it. Um, at Comic Club over here, we are huge Calvin and Hobbes fans. Amazing art amazing kind of character work and i mean you captured it it's the movement the vibe and that's what you can do in comics where your eye follows it across the page and there's like like you said like 10 windies just going berserk and it's so so great with the stillness of rose and it kind of shows character too because rose is sort of the still calm collected reader i think she's like writing there or something and then wendy's the hyperactive you know one who's always going crazy it's beautiful it's so much yeah it says so much without saying anything it's great love it my last art award is the through the digital lens award and it's uh the uncle is a photographer and somehow rose gets his camera and there is a page here where you see the sort of outlines in the digital camera and if you've ever looked through one it has these sort of framing lines where it's like the rule of thirds there's the center there's all these different focus features and there's like this blurry picture of a birdhouse and then the next panel is the same image but the birdhouse is in focus and you see and I love that so much because, again, it captures these sound effects, but it's kind of like this POV shot all of a sudden where you're you're looking through it with her. And, if, again, if you've ever used a digital camera, you know exactly that feeling of just, like, the, the little lens going click, click, and it's always kind of shifting in and out as you focus. And it's so specific, and that's what this book does so well is just capture these little specifics so these minute details in such clarity that you can't help but just understand and sort of know what's going on. And I just love that. And that's one I wanted to call out. Yeah, the nuance in this book is is really something to behold. It is. All right, let's take a stroll, everybody. It's time to go down to Adaptation Alley. Adam, what do you got in store for us today? All right, it's going to be a brief walk because I scoured the depths of the internet. I could not find anything about any adaptations in the works, um, which surprises me a little bit because usually when something has this many awards, they're trying to get it onto a screen yes. or something and expose it to a bigger audience, which makes total sense. But in this case, I would actually argue that I think it's better suited as a graphic novel. Some things you just shouldn't 
adapt because different mediums provide different things and can offer different experiences. And I think that this would just totally change if it was on a screen. You're not going to get any of those awesome little sound effects. Like, yeah, you'll hear them, but the the act of reading them takes you to a different place. So there's no adaptations in the works. Instead, since we were talking about how much of a, a genre coming of age is in an, in and of itself, I thought I would just list off a few Get a couple reactions from Blaine. You tell me where it ranks, you know, if you, you're into it, if you were a fan of it as a youth or whatever you feel. And just your first thoughts. And we're going to start. Most of these are from the screen. But this first okay. one is a book, Catcher in the Rye. What do you think about Catcher in the Rye? Catcher in the Rye is one I believe I read whenever I was in college, which is a little bit after the kind of curriculum that it it gets handed to in most people's young hands. And all I remember about the book is the very end. And I think that's kind of what makes it so powerful um, in my memory is it doesn't have that thing where some people it's like this pivotal tome that they'll always like go down. But to me, I just remember, is it Holden Caulfield? That's the, that's the main guy's yep. name. Yep. At the very end, I believe he's like homeless. You'll have to recap it better than me. He's like kind of bopping around New York. And then he just remembers this, um, memory where you finally get the title of why it's called the catcher in the rye and they're playing this game where they're th- they're they're tossing each other back and forth and something and, and it ties in and that is so distinct in my mind that it's just kind of one of those you know snapshots that you know they always show somebody holding the book in the movies and it's just that snapshot there that is so specific to me that again this one summer captures those like little details that they just imprint in your mind. What do you got, Adam? Yeah, I always loved Catcher in the Rye. I'm a big J.D. Salinger fan. And that one, I just thought it was great. Um, yeah, the ending, he kind of summarizes this experience that he's had and relates it to this, you know, childhood memory, essentially, of like a little, there's like, it's um, it's not like a, it's, it's like, like Red a Rover, Red Yeah, Rover? it's like that. Yeah, it's like Red Rover, Red Rover kind of thing where they're like, if a body, catch a body coming through the ride. Yes, Something yes. like that. And it all kind of hits home and he's learned a lot and he's he's grown up from the beginning of the book to the end and that's what it's all about. All right, so moving on. We love Catcher in the Rye. Love it. <laughs> Over to film. Let's start off with a little lighter one. 10 Things I Hate About You. Um. 10 Things I Hate About You, one of those classic rom-coms of sort of my middle school and high school youth. It was kind of before I really uh, understood or could contextualize Heath Ledger's, you know, how awesome he was. But it's also one of those ones that I haven't revisited, so I don't have a ton to say about it, except that there's a lot of good feelings. Whenever you're kind of in middle school and high school, those high school um, rom-coms just hit so hard and it's hard to have any sort of negative viewpoints about those. It's easier when you're older to look back and say some are stupid, but whenever you're then, whenever you're young, you just think those actors are the coolest people in the entire world. And Heath Ledger in that movie is such a baller. He's a bad boy, but then he kind of softens up because the girl wins him over and it makes him, you know, have to expose a side of himself. He never, Never thought he would have to expose. It's great. Also got a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I was a big fan of 10 Things I Hate About You back in the day. Haven't watched it in a while. Okay, next one. Let's stick kind of with the teen. Most of these are with teenagers because that's when you come of age. Um, this one's maybe the most recent on the list, actually. Lady Bird. 
Did you see Lady Bird? Adam, I am obsessed with Lady Bird, and I saw it when it came out, and I was like, this movie is freaking brilliant. I have since revisited it, and five out of five stars for me. It captures my experience because that's whenever I was coming of age. So the music is uh, unique to sort of me as like graduating high school in 2004, which I believe is almost exactly the same time that movie is set. So there's the scene I always remember in that movie that I wanted to call out. And she had just broken up with maybe Chalamet, I can't remember. And, and they go to this they're laying down she's with her best friend and they're listening to crash by dave matthews band and to them it is the most like profound best music and i remember that feeling of like you know dave matthews or these old cheesy you know early 2000 music groups and you're just like this is telling me everything about they read my journal like this is so real (laughs) and um and then now you look back at it you're like i hate dave matthews what a joke but but that movie captures that so well i love that how it just feels like people are speaking directly towards you i was a big dashboard confessional fan back in the day so you know we all have our little um <laughs> maybe now there could be guilty pleasures but back then they were just our favorite thing in the world Met the world yeah <laughs> okay so let's just um go way back in time this one i saw you know i, I looked at a couple lists of yeah of uh, coming of age to get inspired. And I picked the best ones. This one, I didn't think about it, but then I thought, yeah, that is a coming of age movie. Badlands. Oh my gosh. Coming of age story, Badlands. Um, listen, we're big Terrence Malick heads over here. I think, Adam, you worked on some Terrence Malick, right? I did. I did. Yes. Um, yeah. I got a Badlands poster on my wall in my living room. So you could say I'm a fan. You know, I've mentioned the music you know, multiple times now. And I always still think about this scene whenever they're slowly starting to break up. And there's this old Rat Pack song that plays whenever they're in the middle of a desert. And I think they're dancing in front of the headlights of the car. And it's this sort of feeling of you're with somebody, you know, is not you're not good for, or they're not good for you. And um, obviously they're kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde story if you're not familiar with Badlands. So they're they're really bad. They've killed people. But um, it's this sort of thing where you stay in the relationship too long. And I think that's what Badlands captured is um, there's like this serious like love where you feel it so hard. And then the honeymoon kind of ends and you actually really get to know each other and you kind of realize you know, we might love and lust for each other, but we're not for each other. And I think that's what Badlands really captures. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, that you're not right for each other, but you're, you've come this far. And so you're conflicted about whether or not you should just dig in and stick with it or you'd bail now. It's great. Okay. Moving along. Um, I love Badlands too. Um, Let's go. Badlands 2. No, I mean, I love Badlands also. The sequel. Badlands 2, the sequel coming (laughs) this fall. Terrence Malick Jr. That'd be what? cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we gotta Charlie get back. <laughs> we gotta get back on track here. Um, what do you think about Boyhood? This is, you know, there's some very big similarities to some Malickian moments in Boyhood. I would say. Um, I think you were the one who I and I watched Boyhood and I was like, wow, what an incredible achievement. And after hearing you talk about it, Adam, I went back and revisited it later. And I think Boyhood is going to go down as like one of the 
most impressive cinematic achievements like ever. Like just the what it did with time. And if you're if you haven't watched Boyhood, uh, Adam, maybe you can say it better than I do. They they go back and film over a ten year period. And um, it really captures the adolescence. Um, maybe you can speak to it a little bit more because I think you're the you're the you helped convince me. I love Boyhood. Um, basically, what Richard Linklater did was I think it was twelve years. They would meet up for like one week every year. This cast, he got them all to commit to it. You know, Ethan Hawke, Patricia Arquette, and I don't know the kid's name, but um, yeah. and his daughter as well as one of the other main actors. And they would meet up, they would shoot a new scene, and that would be a new year in time. So they actually age in real time. It covers twelve years in this kid's life, and I just thought it was it created such a unique experience, and yes. to me, really spoke to me. It's all shot in Texas, even though I didn't grow up in the areas where it's mostly shot. It, like I think it takes place kind of around the Houston area a lot, um, and that wasn't my hometown. I'm from North Texas. What up, North Texas? And uh, but I could just like it just felt like you know like my youth, like growing up in so many ways. And his experience is radically different than anything that I went yes. through. My parents aren't divorced. I come from a, like a pretty big family with lots of siblings and stuff. Um, and you know we lived out in the suburbs my whole life. But there's just things that are are relatable to every childhood experience, and I loved what that said about it. Yeah, and I think coming-of-age stories are trying to capture sort of the feeling or the vibe, and they're telling their own story. And this feels real. Like, it really – and I know that Richard Linklater would sit down with that lead actor every year and be like, what are you into? What's new? What are you going through? Do you, are you dating? And they would kind of talk about this and write – Every, you know, kind of every year of uh, what are we going to film this year? What is, what are the topics going to be? And it's true coming of age. We literally see that boy come of age before our eyes throughout the course of that film. And that's why it's so brilliant. Yep. Okay. Let's go to the 80s real quick. We're wrapping this up. But I thought there was two kind of big 80s movies and you can kind of lean one way or the other. So I'll, okay. so I'll put them both out there. You yes. can talk about one or the other. And I think two of the best coming of age films from the 80s are... Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh -huh. and Breakfast Club. Okay. Breakfast Club is one where I've seen it disjointedly all through my youth, but never really had that really pivotal moment with it. So I'm going to go to Ferris Bueller. Great. Good choice. Um, among my favorite coming-of-age stories, it's just that, that moment of, I mean, he says it, if you don't look around, you know, life moves pretty fast. If you don't look around every once in a while, it'll pass you by. And it's just trying to squeeze all of the juice out of life in one day, in, in, in every moment. And as a kid, you're always trying to do that because it's so silly because kids are always like, you know, you're like getting into college and you're like, God, growing up is hard. I'm getting older. You know, you, you graduate college, you're like, oh, I'm so old. Like I, I miss those days. And it passes you so fast when you're young. And I just remember those days of being summer break in like uh, middle school and high school and just really trying so hard to capture as much of the day as possible. And I didn't want to take a nap because you want to go swimming and you want to just keep going and you don't want to come inside. You don't want to have to go to sleep because those are the best days. And Ferris Bueller, God, I love that movie. And God bless him. He's a, he's a kind of leader in that you know he's like a patron saint of of like 
you know, don't let, you know, your youth pass you by. Really, really live it up. And and that's what makes that movie so good. You got to savor the moment. And there's such like wisdom in that that story too of the realization that those times are going to end. Yes. You know, this youth will come to an end, your college, your high school, whatever. So you have to take advantage of while you can. It's beautiful. I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off so much. I do like The Breakfast Club a lot, but it didn't have that connection. I felt the exact same way. You summed it up perfectly, so we don't need to say anything more about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay, this one, we got two left. This one surprised me a little bit, and then I thought, whoa, what what an interesting coming-of-age story. Okay. The original three Star Wars movies. Luke Skywalker, oh gosh, coming of age story. Um, well, I will say that I, whenever I talk about Star Wars, and you know, I'm I'm I think a little bit less of a fan than I used to be. But there's always like, who's your favorite Jedi? Um, who's your favorite? You know, who's the coolest? Who do you think is the coolest? Because I mean, obviously, Han Solo is the best of of the films, the yeah. original films. But whenever you talk about who's the favorite Jedi, I still say Luke. And I'm not talking about Luke from one. I'm usually talking about Luke from three. And I mention that because he changes. You know, he really is the guy throughout the course of that where in the first one, he's, but I want to go to town and get some power converters. Yeah. You know, he's like the nerd who just like is like whiny, doesn't know what's going on. And at the end, whenever he rolls up into Jawa the Hutt's palace and he's wearing all black, He's got the green saber, he's reconstructed his hand, and he's just, you know, ready to go toe-to-toe and meet his father again. Oh, man, I love that. I've never thought about it in the context of a coming-of-age story. What a ride. What a ride. Incredible coming-of-age story. Next time you watch Star Wars, keep that in mind, folks. Okay, and the last one. I think I might have saved the best for last, but you got to tell me what you think. The modern classic... By Wes Anderson, Rushmore. Oh my gosh, Rushmore is such. I, I well, I love Rushmore. I love Wes Anderson. Rushmore is such a tricky one for me because uh, t- tell me the lead character's name of Rushmore. It's uh, Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman, his character there, he's so adult like already. The way he acts, the way he talks, the way he does things, it's so weird because he – and that's what makes Rushmore kind of like such a trip is the guy has his shit together more than any teen could ever have their shit together. He's the captain of all these clubs. He's writing a million plays. He's doing all this stuff. He's very sort of mature. But then at the same time, you get an exposure of – to his life whenever he really is around adults and whenever he does entangle himself with adult problems and the way he forms a you know romance with his teacher uh, or a teacher at the school and then the Bill Murray character as well of he is just very out of his depth here and he actually is still a kid and that's the thing that I think he learns at the end of I don't need to grow up so fast. I don't need to put on airs and 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 worry about AP courses and worry about which college I'm getting into. I need to just live my life and actually be a kid. So it's almost this weird almost reverse thing where he's he's having he's realizing that he actually just needs to be a kid and be who he is instead of have to grow up. So I I that one's a really interesting one. Oh, that was a great great assessment of that. I love that. Well said. 
The moral of the story is that there is an endless amount of great coming-of-age stories. We could do this all day. I have all day, a whole nother list. I love it. But we'll save that for a different pod and um, go read some more coming-of-age stories. Go watch some more coming-of-age stories because they're awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to wrap this baby up. But before we do, there was one last thing that I wanted to talk about, and that's black and white movies, TV, comic books. This is not fully black and white. This is, you know, but it's still monochrome. So, you know, what this is blues and purples, but they're all, it's it's one shade, basically. So I just wanted to kind of get your take on that, Adam. Um, we talked about how much we loved the art. How do you feel about black and white or monochrome in media in general? I like it. I don't think that I have a necessarily strong feeling about it one way or another, because I think it can kind of just depend on the story. You know, there are some stories that I think it works for really well. We read Black Hole earlier, and that's all black and white, and I can't really imagine reading that in a color format. Totally. But um, but there are some things where I do think the color works really well. And this one, I liked it. I liked how it was not, like you said, not black and white, but it, it just uses dark blues, really dark blues, like indigo almost, um, for the most part. I liked that it was different, and it's a cool choice, a cool aesthetic. I don't know... Um, I could see that this story could be really well interpreted with color because there yeah. are just some, some hues that I associate with summertime that I think would be nice to see. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the stylistic choice. I think it kind of keeps you within a world. It makes it yes. really feel like a contained universe. You know, that's a question I'm going to keep bringing up as we go into comics, because there are some of these monotone comics, and um, we talked about it in Black Hole, and we talked about it here, and I want to keep talking about it again. Because I have these larger conversations, whether it's film, I mean, um, black and white films, I find my in-laws who aren't as like film nerd as me, whenever there's a movie in black and white, it it almost, they think all of a they equate it to like, as it's like a foreign language film or like an indie movie. They're like, they're like black and white. Like, wow, why can't they just make it color? Like Mank. Mank, he was like repulsed by Mank because it's in black and white. And to me, you know, my background, I, I I love photography is black and white is a whole art form on itself. The way you um, process the colors and the deep blacks and all the shades in between. So I think that's beautiful. And I love the restraint of limited color palettes and limited color choices. I mean, Mm. this is about as limited as it gets, but Jillian Tamaki really does do washes, all sorts of shades in between. So it's not just the black and white of black hole where there's just, it's either black or it's nothing. Um, it, it, It creates a lot of dynamics i think to your point is is yes like i I think you could color this i think you could take all the shades and turn them like pink or something and it you know it could pop in a whole different way this is a very cool book but just something i wanted to bring up because i i think it's an interesting choice whenever they do that and i think often artists it allows them to kind of go a little bit deeper or just kind of explore sort of like tones and vibes more rather than um, letting colors like come later. I don't know. It's something I was thinking about. I like that. Yeah. All right. That's going to wrap it up for Comic Club. You can follow us across the internet at Comic Club Podcast. Tell a friend and leave us a review. You can find me on Twitter at Blaine McGaff. I'm on Instagram at Danger Adam. And that's going to wrap it up for today's show. Adam? Comic Club out.
Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Thank you.